I got to tell you, I love that intro. <laughs> Our media guys nailed that. They made that. And I think it's so fitting because it accurately gets at the idea of being entangled by sin. You remember a couple of weeks ago when we started this series on it, being entangled, that I told you that the writer of Hebrews talks about that the sin, we should lay aside the sin that so easily entangles us and run the race that God has for us. Well, you can't do that. You can't run the race if you're entangled in sin. We talked about the pride of life last week. That hit home with some of you, I understand. Some of you shared that with me. We all struggle with that from time to time. And this morning, I want us to think about the consequences. I've talked about this each Sunday, but the consequences of what it looks like, the dangers of being entangled, because they're true for everyone. The consequences are that when you're entangled in sin, your communication with God is interrupted. Absolutely. Your growth in the Lord, your growth for God is disrupted. You can't continue to grow. You can't have an ever-growing relationship with Jesus Christ if you're entangled in some sin or multiple sins in your life. And the third thing that's true of everyone who's entangled in sin is that you, you realize that you, your influence for the Lord, the, the ability that you have to make an impact on other people in your life is corrupted. And those things are true. That idea of communication being interrupted, the idea of your growth being disrupted and your influence for the Lord being corrupted, that's true for all people. It's an absolute truth. It's from God's Word. We looked at those things from God's Word. So that means that those three things are true for every person in every place for all time. Those three things are true. So when you're entangled in sin, there's some dangerous aspects to that, that that's why it's so important that you not become or allow yourself to stay entangled in sin. So last week, as I mentioned, we talked about the pride of life. This morning, we're gonna talk about another sin that's a systemic, systemic sin. It's one of those sins that's a root of other sins. It leads to other sins in our life. And it's a sin the Bible calls the fear of of man. Now, if you have your Bible this morning, you can go ahead and turn to the book of Proverbs. We're going to read one verse from chapter 29 in just a minute. And if you're joining us online, I want to say welcome to you this morning. We're glad that you're watching and participating in worship with us. I would ask you to get your Bible and turn as well to Proverbs 29. Those of you who are watching our Billy Moore campus, we welcome you as well and ask you to get your Bibles. And then I want to ask all of us to stand out of reverence for God and his word. We're going to read Proverbs 29, verse 25, one verse related to this idea of the fear of man. This is what the Bible says, the fear of mankind is a snare, but the one who trusts in the Lord is protected. Thank you. You can be seated this morning. So what are we talking about when we talk about the fear of man? Let me, let me just share a story with you to illustrate it. You guys know that I was a youth pastor for many, many years. And over the years of doing youth ministry, I think I've seen just about everything in terms of the way that kids get tangled in the fear of their peers. We would call that peer pressure, right? And, and it's not just true for students, but let me, let me tell you a story. Some of you guys that were at camp a couple of years ago, and I appreciate you remember this story. It's probably the most pointed story of someone who was consumed by the fear of man in his life. There was a young man in our youth ministry at my previous church where I served in Weatherford. His name is Jason. And Jason was, uh, lived with his grandparents, and uh, if you looked at Jason, just by his appearance, you would know that Jason didn't really fit in anywhere. He was very socially awkward. Bless his heart, he had a terrible complexion. He couldn't help that. Um, but he just socially didn't know how to interact with people. Part of that, I think, was living with his grandparents, maybe. His parents, he told me, were carnies. They were people who traveled around with carnivals and set the rides up, took the rides down, whatever, 
He never really knew his parents. He wasn't ever around his parents because when he was a very young child, his parents brought him to their, their parents, his grandparents, and said, live with your grandparents. And so his grandparents did not attend our church, but they wanted Jason to be involved in a youth group because they sort of knew that a youth group doesn't operate by the same values or shouldn't operate by the same values that the rest of the world operates by. A kid like Jason ought to be able to find a place of belonging and, and a place to fit in in a, tr- a Christian youth group, right? So I was like, absolutely, I'm glad. Jason was already a part of the youth group actually before I became a member or a member and minister at the church. So Jason had a lot going against him. And we got to youth camp one year and about the first, second day, I don't I think it was the first day actually, uh, we had our recreation time and we were having free time. So, you know, two o'clock to five o'clock in the afternoon, there's free time. And I kind of round the corner and I'm headed somewhere to take care of something. And I look up out of the corner of my eye and I see somebody in a tree. And I was like, I look up and it's Jay. Hey, Mr. Paul, how are you doing? And I'm like, Jason, what are you, what are you doing? Okay. Cause you know, elementary preteen camp, maybe you'd see a kid in a tree. Maybe, maybe at junior high camp, you'd see a kid in a tree never see a kid in a tree at high school camp. Just kind of figure that out by high school, right? He's up in the tree, just perched up in the tree, content. And I'm like, Jason, what are you doing in that tree? What what are you doing up there? And he's like, "Um, the cool guys told me that if I would stay in the tree from two o'clock until supper, that I could be a cool guy. I'm like, who are the cool guys? I didn't know we had any cool guys in our youth group. (laughs) Who are the cool guys, you know? Well, I can't tell you, they told me not to tell you. Please don't make me tell you. I was like, okay, look, okay, look, okay. If you wanna stay, are you okay staying in the tree? I mean, do you wanna be, yeah, yeah, I wanna be here. I wanna do this. I was like, okay, stay in the tree, I guess, whatever. Okay, so I go on about my business. I'm like, I gotta find out who the cool guys are and I gotta put it into this behind the scenes. So I'm asking around our youth staff, I'm like, look, be on the lookout. There's apparently a group of guys that have identified themselves as the cool guys and they're torturing Jason. So we need to put an end to this. Let's just be aware of what's going on and find out what's going on. So fast forward the next morning, I'm the first one up every morning at camp because I want the hot shower. Okay, so first one up, I don't care what time it is. I think it's like 545 and we're in this hotel dormitory situation. So the bathroom's down the hall. So I'm up and I'm down the hall and I go in the restroom Lights are all still off, nobody's up, and I come back out, and I'm heading back down to my room, and I look down the hallway, and I see, like, something in the hallway, and I'm like, looks like a ball, kind of, and I'm like, what, I don't even know. I walk down there, and I get right up to it, and Jason goes, hey, Mr. Paul, and I about jumped out of my skin, and I go over and turn the light on, and oh, man, I instantly turn the light off, because Jason is sitting in his birthday suit, in the hallway with his clothes neatly folded next to him. And I have this image burned in my mind now because I turned the light on and off real fast. I have like a negative in my mind now. All I can see is Jason. I said, Jason, what are you doing? It's not even six o'clock in the morning. He said, well, the cool guys told me if I would sit outside their room, I know who the cool guys are now, okay. If I would sit outside their room all night until daybreak, I could be a cool guy. I said, Jason, from, and it's all dark, I'm not, I'm just, Jason, from henceforth evermore, you are a cool guy, okay? You don't have to do anything else to be a cool guy. For the rest of this week, you're a cool guy. If anyone tells you you need to do something else to be a cool guy, you come find me because I'm declaring you cool for the rest of camp, okay? Okay, sure. So get your clothes on and leave as quick as you can, okay? So he gets his clothes on, he leaves, and I go into the cool guy's room, who are all sound asleep, and I turn the light on. And I declare to them in a very loud voice, I say, listen, guys, 
You are the cool guys, I understand. Well, guess what? Jason is officially part of your clan and crew now for the rest of camp. And if you require him to do anything else related to being a cool guy, there's a van parked out there and I've got an adult who's waiting to escort you home, okay? And I mean it. So he's cool from here on. Are we understanding each other? Yes, sir. They're like, oh, yes, sir. You know, yeah. So why would anybody do silly stuff like that? Why would anybody do sit up in a tree or sit outside somebody's room in your birthday suit all night? You know why? Because Jason was ruled by the fear of his peers, by the fear of man. And it's not just teenagers that struggle with the fear of man, is it? No. Each of us sometimes in our lives, even as adults, struggle with the idea of being afraid of what other people think about us, what they might say about us, or what they might do to us if we don't conform to whatever it is that they want for us. And that's what the scripture is affirming. So when you think about a sin that entangles you, that's systemic, that leads to other sins, the fear of man is something we have to deal with in our lives. So this morning, I want to help you understand three discoveries related to this idea and this sin, this entangling sin called the fear of man. And the first is this, that the fear of man is always, always the wrong motivation. So think about what I just said a moment ago. Those three questions. There are three questions that consume people who are entangled in the fear of man. And the first is, what will people think of me? When's the last time that question ran through your mind before you decided to do something, before you decided to wear something, before you decided to go somewhere, before you decided to post something? What will other people think of me? Your Bible is full of stories of people who were entangled in the fear of man. You remember last week that I told you about King Saul. He was the first king of Israel. And you remember that he went to supposedly destroy the Amalekites and he wasn't supposed to bring anything back, but he didn't obey the Lord. He brought back some sheep and some goats. He brought the king back. And he said, I did that so I could sacrifice to the Lord. That wasn't the real reason he did it. And I told you this week I would talk more about him because you see the Bible goes on to explain why exactly he didn't obey the Lord. Samuel, the prophet says to him, Listen, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed rather than the fat of rams. So he was saying, it's better to obey the Lord than to sacrifice the Lord. So why did Saul, the king of Israel, why did he give in? Why did he succumb to that? This is what it says in 1 Samuel 15, 24. Saul answered Samuel, I have sinned. I've transgressed the Lord's command in your words because I was afraid of the people. I obeyed them. So we know. Now we know the real reason. We know the real motivation. The fear of man is always the wrong motivation. But we know that in Saul's case, he was motivated by the fear of his people. Now, he's the king. The, the people of Israel couldn't have physically done anything to him. He's the king. He was afraid of what they would think of him. And so he disobeyed God. He chose rather to give in to his fear of people rather than obey the Lord. And when that happens in your life, you're entangled in the fear of man. That's sort of a weird way to live, to be motivated to make decisions based on what someone might think of you. I think I just described every social media post, right? How many times when you start to post something, do you write it and then you erase it and think, well, that somebody might think, right? And that's, that's the world we live in now. We're often very motivated and entangled in the fear of man. So that first question that we're consumed with if we're entangled in the fear of man is, what will people think of me? The second question is, what will people say about me? You ever wonder about that in your life? I wonder what they're going to say about me. I wonder what they'll say about me when I'm not there. 
behind my back. I wonder what they might say about me. Well, if you understand the Bible, you'll know that when Jesus came and he, he told about his redemptive plan to save the world, that there were many Jewish people that were against him. But the Bible says that there were actually some people who were rulers who were part of the Sanhedrin, which was the, essentially like the Supreme Court for Judaism. They were part of these people who were rulers that actually in their hearts believed that Jesus was the Messiah. But they were afraid and they didn't confess him. And this is what John 12, 42 says, nevertheless, many did believe in him, even among the rulers. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him so that they would not be banned from the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than the praise of God or praise from God. <laughs> that explains their motivation. Think about that. These men were influential. What if just one of them would have stood up and said, wait a minute, I think Jesus is the Messiah. They were afraid. That's why they didn't say what's true. That's why they didn't tell the truth. That's why they didn't openly confess him. They were afraid about what people might say about them. And honestly, in our lives, we're influenced by the same thing. But think about what would have happened if they would have just influenced people with what they truly believed in their hearts. If they wouldn't have been afraid. If they wouldn't have lived and been entangled by the fear of man. I got to go to Israel several years ago. And, you know, we, you go to Israel and the way we went is we went up the Mediterranean, then went up into Galilee and Nazareth, came back down to the Dead Sea, and then finally went to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was like well into our trip. And when we got to the hotel that night in Jerusalem, there was a guy there who was part of our tour, worked for our tour that was helping people get their luggage off the bus and figure out what room they were in, all those kind of things. And so after everybody was kind of settled, he and I began to talk. His name was Abraham, and he had an English accent. And he told me that he had been raised in England, but as, he, as an adult, he and his family moved to Israel because he's Jewish. But he said, I'm a Jewish Christian. I'm a completed Jew. And so I still wanted to be in Israel. And he said, so, so he said this to me, and I had to stop him and ask him about it. He said, the anti-missionary organization here, and I was like, whoa, 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 what, are you, what is that? He's like, well, in Israel, there's an organization called the anti-missionary organization. I'm like, whoa. He goes, exactly what it sounds like. They don't want people to come here and talk about Jesus. Now, they want you guys to come here and spend your money because tourism is one of their main sources of the economy here, but they don't want you to come here and convert people to Christianity. They don't want that at all. He goes, so the anti-missionary organization estimates that there are about 5,000 people in Israel today who are Christians. He goes, but I know there are far more than that. He goes, we often, my wife and I often invite people into our homes, people, somebody new moves into our neighborhood, or we meet someone in the community, and we often invite them to come to our house and break bread with us. And if not the first question, probably the second question we ask them is this, have you believed in Jesus yet? And he said, when we first moved back here, much to our surprise, many people would say, yes, we have. And he would think, wow, we're brothers and sisters, we're completed Jews, we have too. But he said, what we discovered is that many people in modern day Israel who in their hearts believe in Jesus are very much unwilling to openly confess him because they could lose their business, their family may never speak to them again, their friends may never speak to them again. There's a high price to pay for following Jesus. And so out of the fear of man, they believe in their heart that Jesus is the Messiah, but out of the fear of man, they're unwilling to openly identify with him. And that's exactly what was going on in Jesus's day. Jesus said this, woe to you when all people speak well of you. That is a great thing to remember in your life. So you can ask yourself, it's sort of a test. Right now in my life, does, am I, am I, is a goal of mine to seek to get everyone to like me? Everyone to think good things about me or say good things about me? That's not a worthy goal according to Jesus. 
He said, woe to you when you're in that situation. Beware. That's not, a, that's not a goal that you should have in your life. Not that you should go out and be obnoxious and make enemies, naturally just because you want to do that. But he's saying, if you live for me, not everyone's going to like that. Do you know people in your life right now who don't like you, don't accept you, don't think good things about you, and may not say good things about you because of your faith in Jesus Christ? Jesus said, woe to you when everybody speaks well of you. When you're motivated by the fear of man, it's always, always the wrong motivation. And so people ask those questions. What will people think of me? What will people say about me? And the third question that people ask who are consumed by the fear of man in their lives is what will people do to me? And sometimes, though I think it's pretty safe to say in Longview, if you go knock on somebody's door who's a stranger and you seek to share the gospel with them, they're probably not going to physically do anything to harm you. I never have heard of that happening in Longview. Now, Someone reminded me after the first service that we did go on a faith visit several years ago and the lady unleashed her dog on us. I forgot about that. We had to run back to the car and get in. Uh, and I made it safe, by the way. So, but that's the only time in my life in Longview, Texas, knocking on doors that anybody's ever tried to physically do anything. Now, yes, there are people who walk past the door and never answer it, certainly. And there are people who answer the door and sometimes are rude. But we go on these blitzes all the time. We're seeking to get the word out about Jesus and invite people to church. And there's some people who don't want anything to do with that. But if you wouldn't go on one of those blitzes because you're afraid of what some might, somebody might think of you, say to you, or do to you, then you're entangled in the fear of man already. And there's a, there's a story in Daniel 6. You remember this story probably from your childhood, if you haven't read it since, of Daniel and the lion's den. You remember that Daniel wouldn't obey. The king said, you can't pray anymore. He's like... Uh, I'm going to still pray to God. So he prayed three times a day, even did it where they could see him. He was like, I'm still going to pray to God. I'm not scared. I'm not ashamed. I'm not afraid. So they threw him in the lion's den. And God gave him victory. He didn't get eaten up by the lions. I can't imagine a worse way to die than being eaten by lions alive. But that didn't happen to David or Daniel. Daniel did what the Lord wanted him to do, and the Lord actually protected him. Well, if you go back, if you want to read that, it's in Daniel 6. But the Bible actually says that all who desire to live godly lives, Paul said this, they'll suffer persecution. In fact, he said all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, the sermon is not necessarily about persecution, but it's about the fear of persecution. Most of us have never been persecuted for our faith. Not really. But we know it's possible. We know it's possible that people could do bad things to us. And so we just avoid it which leads to the, is motivated by the fear of man. You guys probably saw this, but Thursday night, Major League Baseball started back up again. Some of you guys are like, yeah, okay, awesome, sports on TV, not reruns anymore. And so the San Francisco Giants played, and you guys probably saw this on social media, a guy named Sam Coonrod, who's their pitcher, one of their pitchers. At the beginning of the game, they had a moment where they sort of honored the Black Lives Matter movement, and they had a black ribbon, and all the team grabbed a hold of the ribbon and knelt down. Everyone except Sam Coonrod. He grabbed the ribbon, but he refused to kneel. He stood up. You know why? I'll tell you why. This is what he said. This is a quote. I'm a Christian, so I just believe that I can't kneel before anything besides God. I just can't get on board with a couple of things I've read about Black Lives Matter and how they lean toward Marxism. So I'm not going to kneel. So Sam Coonrod is not entangled in the fear of man. Can you imagine being the only guy on both teams who stood up when everyone else kneeled? 
You don't think this fall, if they even play football, when there's all this pressure on all these players and all these teams to kneel, if you don't kneel, you're a racist? What if you don't kneel because you believe like Sam that I won't kneel, I won't kneel to anyone except God? That takes courage. That takes someone who's not entangled by the fear of man, who's not worried about what might happen because he might get canceled. He might lose his career over this. We don't know what's going to happen. We hope that doesn't happen, but that could happen to him. The coach may say, you're just too divisive for the locker room. Guys don't want to be around you, you know, because you wouldn't kneel. Yeah. You guys all know that's the culture we live in now. So the fear of man is a very real thing. And I think if we're honest, we have to say that sometimes we're motivated more by the fear of man than the fear of God. So think about that. What will people do to me? It's a question that comes up. And if, if part of my motivation um, is to influence in some way what people might say about me, think about me, or do to me, then it probably means that I'm entangled in fear. So that's always in our lives a wrong motivation. When you're trying to figure out what to do in a situation, if part of the equation is what will people say to me, think about me, or do to me because of that, just know it's always the wrong motivation. Always. That's the first thing. The second thing about the fear of man is that it's always entangling. That verse we read from Proverbs, the fear of mankind is a snare, the Bible says. What's a snare? A snare is a trap. It actually, in the original language, means a net, like spread a net out in order to catch a bird. So it's a, a net that entangles you. It goes right along with what this sermon series is about. It entangles you. You get trapped. Now you're not free anymore. Well, that's what he's saying. The fear of man is a trap. It entangles us. And you guys remember Peter, who was probably the disciple who maybe was closest to Jesus on the night that Jesus was arrested. All the disciples deserted Jesus. They'd been with him for three and a half years. They all deserted him. And Peter ran away but came back and sort of just followed Jesus from a distance. He wanted to see what was going to happen, I guess. So they took Jesus to Caiaphas' house, the high priest, and Peter's just outside watching and waiting. And this girl, this servant girl, begins to question Peter. Aren't you one of them? This is what happens in Mark 14, verse 69. When the maidservant saw him, she began to tell those standing nearby, this man is one of them. So now she's bringing other people into it. But again, Peter, he denied it. And after a little while, while those standing there said to Peter again, you certainly are one of them since you're also a Galilean. And then he started to curse and swear. Use his fisherman language. I don't know this man you're talking about. Can you imagine him saying that? Immediately a rooster crowed a second time and Peter remembered when Jesus had spoken the word to him before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Here's Peter in this moment of his life where he could trust God completely or he could give in to the fear of man, and he gives in to the fear of man, even to the point that he's cursing. I don't know this man. Can you imagine that? Peter wanted to follow Jesus, but still maintain some level of anonymity. Is that true about you? I'm a follower of Jesus, but I don't really want everybody to know about it because it might create problems for me where I work. It might create problems for me in my family, with my friends. If that's you, you're entangled by the fear of man. And the fear of man, we know, is always entangling. You see, when we live our lives like that, it corrupts our influence. And, and people around us, when they know we're a Christian, 
but they never see us talk about it. They never see us identify with Christ publicly. They never see us do things like Sam Coonrod. Then they sort of think the gospel's not necessary because it doesn't change your life. So why would I need it? It doesn't create any sense of courage in you. So why would I need it? And, and we create a false narrative. We corrupt our influence. Let me ask you this. Over the last seven days since you were here last Sunday or wherever you were last Sunday, what percentage of your decisions in the last seven days would you say were influenced by a desire to not make anybody be upset with you? That's the fear of man. And it's so common that sometimes we don't see it. The, the fear of man played a huge part in even Jesus being crucified. You remember Pilate? Pilate is a representative of the Roman Empire, the most powerful empire in the world. So he's been placed in Israel to sort of be the voice of Rome to them, but he has authority. And so they bring Jesus to Pilate because they want his permission to crucify Jesus, they being the Jewish people. He didn't have to do what they said. He's over them. He has authority over them. But look at what it says in Mark 15. Pilate asked them again, then what do you want me to do with the one you call the king of the Jews? Again, they shouted, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What has he done wrong? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. This is important. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. And after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. Why did he do it? He wanted to satisfy the crowd. Pilate, this man who represented the greatest empire in the world at the time, the most powerful empire in the world, he had all this authority behind him, was entangled in the fear of man. He wanted to please the crowd, so he made a terrible decision. Now listen, did God want Jesus to be, uh, die for you and me? Yes, absolutely he did. So God used that in his plan. But Pilate still got it wrong. He still got it wrong because he did what he did based on the fear of man. The fear of man is always entangling. And then last this morning, the fear of man is always a trust issue. The last part of that verse says this. It says, but the one who trusts in the Lord is protected. And that word protected literally means to be set on high, to be out of harm's way to be unassailable. So it's, it's this sense of the Lord will lift you up. Here's all the chaos down here and the Lord will lift you up and protect you where the chaos can't reach you. That's the idea. So he's saying we always have a choice in our lives. We can be afraid of people or we can trust the Lord. And every week I bet you deal with that in some way in your life. Am I going to please people or am I going to seek to please the Lord? Am I going to do what the Lord wants or am I going to do what people want? And he says here, trust in the Lord. The, the word Lord here is Yahweh. You remember from our Names of God series, that Yahweh is the one that means self-existent, personal, and present. So he's saying the Lord's aware. He's present. He's, he's with you as a believer in Jesus Christ. He's not unaware of what you're going through. And especially when you take a stand for, with him and for him, nothing demonstrates your trust in God any more than your refusal to give in to the fear of man. And nothing demonstrates that you're more entangled in the fear of man than your unwillingness to trust God in the midst of one of those situations that you face where those two things come together. So those ideas, the idea of trusting God and being afraid of people are two mutually exclusive ideas. They never go together. It's either one or the other in our lives. And if you're entangled in the fear of man, it means that you would rather please man or people than God. Listen, if you displease God, it doesn't matter who else you please. And if you please everyone 
and you dis, I'm sorry, if you, if you please God and displease everyone, that's fine. That's the way it ought to be. That's the way God designed it to be, is that I'm living for him and I'm seeking to please him. You guys remember the story of Abraham and so many of the names of God that we looked at were from the first few chapters of the book of Genesis. And Abraham's this guy that has this great story of faith. He leaves his homeland of Haran and God takes him to the promised land. But Abraham didn't always get it right. You remember in Genesis 12, um, they've gotten to the promised land, but they get there and there's a famine. And so he says, let's go down to Egypt and get some food. And so he says to his wife, Sarah, now, Sarah, you're very beautiful. Um, so when we get there, here's what I want us to do. I, I can just imagine him rolling this out to her, okay? So here's, here's what I want us to do, honey. Um, you're very beautiful. And I suspect that the Pharaoh may want to take you for his wife because he can do stuff like that. And so our story is going to be that you're my sister. Okay, you good with that? And she went along with it somehow. Okay, so they get there, and that's exactly what happens. This is my sister, and so the men see her and go, oh, Pharaoh, there's this lady you got to see. You'll probably want her for your wife, you know. So Pharaoh takes her to his house, and then all these plagues come on Pharaoh. And this is what Pharaoh says uh, to Abram in Genesis 12. He says, so Pharaoh sent for Abram and said, what have you done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? So that I took her as my wife. Now here's your wife, take her and go. And why would he do that? Why would Abram, the guy who has all this trust in God, suddenly get in a hard situation and go, better not offend the Pharaoh. He's powerful. He's a powerful man. The fear of man is a snare. And it's always a trust issue in your life because he could have said, God, I don't know what, you know, natural man here. We get to Egypt. He's going to want to take my wife. I just know that's the way things work. So I'm just doing the logic here, God. What are we going to do? He could have said, I'm going to trust you. I mean, God, you provided every step of the way in my life so far. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to give you credit. I'm going to give you trust and faith. But he didn't. He tried to take matters in his own hand and rely on his own wisdom and say, well, you know, I got to help God here. Have you ever tried to help God? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we do it all the time. We trust and we take it back. We trust and we take it back. And this happens again in Genesis 20 with Abimelech. He does the exact same thing again. Tell them you're my sister. They won't harm us. They don't trust God. So they probably, and God says, I don't need you to figure it out. I'm good at being God. <laughs> and you're not. So if you'll just trust me, I'll protect you. And your Bible's full of stories of where God did that exact thing over and over again. So the idea of being entangled by the fear of man, how do you conquer that? What do you do about that? How do you, what's the anecdote for that? The anecdote for that is trusting the Lord in a very real and tangible way in your life of saying, I don't know how this is all gonna work out. I'm gonna go in there tomorrow and I'm gonna be honest about something and it's gonna make a lot of people mad. I'm gonna call it the way it is. It's probably gonna upset some people. I might lose my job. There might be all these bad things that'll happen. So maybe I ought to rethink this. Maybe I ought to just, <laughs> and God said, "Will you just trust me? Just trust me. Please me. Do what I want. Please me and trust me, and I'll take care of stuff in your life. And a lot of you know that already. And the reason you know that is because you already have a relationship with God. You know God. You have a personal relationship with him. But I realize that in a room like this, there may be some people like there were in the last hour who don't know the Lord yet. And this morning, what I want to say to you is you're not here by accident. You came in here this morning or you're watching online this morning because the Lord drew you here because he loves you and he wants you to have a relationship with him that starts now and lasts forever. 
But you and I on our own could never be good enough. We sometimes think, well, I'll just earn it. No, you can never be good enough to earn it. And the great news is you don't have to be. He'll give it to you. It's the greatest gift ever. He'll give you eternal life. He'll forgive you of all your sin. He'll adopt you into his family and make you his child. And how do I get that? By simply trusting in Jesus. By believing who he's who he said he is, that he's the savior of the world, and been going one more step and saying, I'm gonna put my trust in you. And so this morning, I'm gonna ask you just to bow your head and close your eyes here in the room. Those of you who are watching online, if you wanna receive Christ as your savior this morning, then I wanna give you a chance to do that. It's the greatest offer anybody's ever made to another human being. You have all your sin forgiven, you get forgiveness, you get a home with God forever and a relationship forever. You can't mess up. You get forgiveness, completely forgiven. That's an amazing gift. And so that, that's you this morning. You say, I want that. I've never asked Christ to come into my life. I've never trusted him, but I want to trust him this morning. Right where you're sitting, would you just raise your hand? Just be courageous about it because the fear of man is a snare. So don't be afraid of what he, nobody's looking around but me anyway. Just raise your hand. I want that this morning. I want Jesus Christ to come into my life. You guys that have your hands up, listen, the Bible says whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so I want to lead you in a time of just calling on the name of the Lord. You may not know how to do that. So you can just say this to the Lord because he knows your heart. You can say something like this, dear God in heaven, I know you're, you sent Jesus for me to forgive me for all my sin, to give me a, an everlasting relationship with you. Thank you. Because I don't want sin anymore. I reject it. I abandon it. I want to have a relationship with you. I want to learn how to trust you for everything in my life. Help me do that in the days ahead. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.